Good morning. Well, generally, when somebody repeats themselves, uh, themselves, they uh, other people begin to wonder if they're starting to lose their bearings. But when an inspired author repeats himself by way of introduction, I think we had probably better take note of what we are looking at. This is the second introduction to the book of Judges. The first was the uh, topic for our last message, and now we come to the second introduction. And I think you can see that, and generally I think it's recognized by others as such. You look, for instance, at the way the book of Joshua ends, and it talks about uh, the all those uh, in verse 31 who served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who survived Joshua and had known all the deeds of the Lord which he had done for Israel. And then when you, uh, when you come to chapter 1 and verse 1 of the book of Judges, it starts with the death of Joshua. Then when we come to our text, beginning at chapter 2 and verse 6, you'll notice it almost picks up exactly where the book of Joshua leaves off, where it has Joshua dismissing the people. It talks about the people following the Lord all the days, not only of Joshua, but of those elders who lived in that same period of time and had seen those things that God had been doing. And then Joshua and that generation die, and so we have our second introduction that we will be dealing with this morning. I don't know if you've ever thought about it before, but Genesis has two introductions. Have you ever thought about that fact? Uh, you have Genesis 1-1 that goes then into chapter 2, and that first introduction is talking about, it has a particular emphasis. The emphasis is on God creating. He creates by separating one thing from another. He creates with his word, with the power of his word, and you always end up with the verdict, it is good. When you come to the second introduction that begins in chapter 2, I think the caption that you might want to look at is the expression that comes later in chapter 2 where it says, And God looked, and it was not good for man to dwell alone. And so in Genesis chapter 2, what you see is the, the description of God supplying things that were lacking. There was no rain, and so God provided a mist. There was no man to cultivate the field, and so God created Adam. There was no woman to uh, be a counterpart for Adam, and so he created uh, Eve. And you say, well, how does that all fit together? Well, I think it does, and it's all in preparation for what we find in Genesis chapter 3, which is a description of the fall. God created everything with the power of his word, that ought to say that you ought to trust God's word because it was God who said, and it is Satan who challenged, hath God said. The God who hath said is the God who created by saying. And he then raises the question of the goodness of God. And in particular, he raises the possibility that somehow there is some unmet need that God has left unsatisfied. That is, there is something that needs to be known that you have by partaking of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but you must disobey God in order to have that. And so those two introductions, 
God creating with his word that which is good. God supplying every deficiency, every need he perfectly supplies is the backdrop then for Genesis 3 and the test that comes. So it's not unusual in the Bible to find two introductions and it certainly is not unusual here because we have to face up to the reality that that's what we have. A couple of things I'm not going to emphasize. One is the details of the Canaanite religion. Davis, uh, who I told you last week, is my favorite commentator on, on the book of Judges, goes into some detail, tastefully, I would add, into some detail as to how the Canaanites practiced their religion. I'm not going to do it for two reasons. One, the Bible seems to carefully avoid telling us any more than the generalities of the Canaanite religion. Two, in Genesis, or, pardon me, in Deuteronomy chapter 12, God says to Israel, when you come into the land and you see the relics of their religion, destroy them. What you don't do is to say, I wonder how they used that. That's a paraphrase. But, but what he's saying is, don't let your curiosity about how they did things get you into studying the evils that they practiced. There's no benefit to it. There's no benefit to knowing the filth of the Canaanite religion. And in Ephesians chapter 5, remember, the scripture says that we are through the light we expose the darkness. But there are certain things that pertain to the darkness that ought not to even be spoken of. So I'm not going to speak about them either. I just don't think we need to know about the Canaanite religion other than this. It was bad. It was bad. And, and that's clear in our text. And it led people astray. The second thing I'm not going to talk about really caught me off guard. And that is I'm not going to talk about parenting. And the reason I'm not is because the text doesn't. Now, I want to be very clear on this point. Elsewhere, the text does talk about it, but not here, not here. One of my favorite preachers, and one of yours as well, has one sermon on the book of Judges, and it is on this text, and it is on parenting. And it's good material, but it reminds me of what my friend Marvin Ball said about one of my sermons. He said, that was the best sermon I've ever heard on that subject but it doesn't belong with that text. <laughs> well, that's the way this is. It doesn't talk about bad parenting here. As a matter of fact, it's interesting to me that bad parenting isn't even an emphasis in the book of Judges. Samson's parents. When Samson is, is announced, his birth is announced and whatever, what is it that the parents say? We want to know how it is that we should raise this child so that he will be a godly child. Well, the reality is Samson wasn't, wasn't the epitome of what every parent hopes for in a child. But it wasn't because of bad parenting. Sometimes we make parenting, good parenting, sort of the only explanation for how a child comes out. I want to tell you, it's not the only explanation. And, and our author purposely chooses not to go there and, and so I'm going to step aside from that, too. This is sort of a, an interesting sidelight that I'll just mention. I don't spend my time reading this kind of stuff, so I did not personally muck around in it, but, but my friend uh, uh, Davis did. 
And, and he had an interesting thing to say about what liberal scholarship does with our text and with the book of Judges altogether. They make the, the editors, I'm going to use that word carefully, they make editors of, of this text postmodern in this way. One, it wasn't written by one guy. Now, we don't know whether it's Samuel or whoever it was. You notice from my title, I say, say it again, Sam. I mean, say it again, Samuel, and that's because he's going to give us another introduction. But we believe there is one author to this, whereas liberal scholarship would say there is this group of editors in very late in history, long from the time these events happened, They have put together this argument, and frankly, they've dealt rather roughly and harshly with the facts of history, and they've manipulated those in their own way to make a point. I don't know what you call it, but I call that postmodern. Here are postmodern scholars accusing the writers of Scripture of dealing with these things in a postmodern way. Well, of course. But isn't that just a, a laugh when you think about this being true history and its lessons being important to us. Also, let me say this. I don't, I don't want to leave the impression, and, and I think some people do, and I've, I've even toyed with it myself, that somehow the, the Israelites were country hicks and that they came to the big Canaanite city and they got all dazzled by these Canaanite gals and, and that they were just so naive and gullible they fell into it. If you read Joshua chapter 24, you'll note that Joshua says your whole history as a nation is saturated in idolatry. You worshipped idols when you were back in Mesopotamia. Your forefathers were idol worshippers. And you were idol worshippers when you were in Egypt. You've got it in your bones. And so when they come into Canaanite land and they've got new gods... There's a predisposition to idolatry. They didn't just get conned into it. They were idolaters at heart. That's why he said, choose this day whom you will serve. Choose to serve God and not your idols. By the way, in Exodus 32, when they created the golden calf, it didn't take them very long to figure out what they wanted to do to represent their God. Why? Because they had that baggage with them already when they came from Egypt. So the Israelites are, are not so naive and, 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 and gullible uh, and vulnerable as we might suppose. And you can see those texts that I've listed. Well, my approach to this text is about as simple as it gets. We're going to walk through the text. We're going to see how the, 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 the second introduction develops. And then we're just going to talk about what that means for us by way of application. Let's begin, though, by taking a quick review of our first text in Judges, and that is the first introduction. It seems to me that you can say that the first introduction is sort of a human perspective of Israel's history. You remember it starts out with the question, who will lead us into battle? God's answer is Judah. Judah uh, gets Simeon to go along with him, and they go into battle. And I have suggested... Not that this goes from good to bad, but it goes from bad to worse. Because my contention is that the way in which they dealt with Adonai Bezek, cutting off his thumbs and his toes, uh, big toes, was simply the way in which Canaanites dealt with their enemies. God said they were to kill 
the enemies, including their kings. And so it seems to me that Israel's failure starts at the beginning of this chapter, and it just gets worse until you get to the end. So you have uh, Israel going to battle and being victorious at the beginning of the chapter. You have Israel being defeated, the Danites being driven up into the high country uh, by the Amorites by the end. Uh, you have the Israelites uh, being successful largely in driving out the Canaanites, but you have the Canaanites who are living among the Israelites about the middle of chapter 1. By the time you get to the end, you have the Israelites living amongst the Canaanites. And even worse, in the last verses, you have the Israelites driven out by the Canaanites. And so it's obviously a picture of human failure. But you really don't see the whole story until you see chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. Because that's where the divine perspective on all of this uh, is brought to bear. We see uh, Israel, the, 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 the tribe of Judah, uh, unable to, to, to defeat and to drive out the people in the plains. And we say, well, yeah, that's because they had iron chariots. How were they supposed to do that? But in chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, God comes, uh, the angel of the Lord comes <coughs> to, uh, from Gilgal to Bochum. And he says to them, look, I made my covenant with you. With my covenant, I promised to give you this land. I promised to give you this victory. And I also said, you are not to enter into covenant with these people. And, uh, and yet, what have you done? You, you have not torn down their altars. You have, you have been absor- absorbed and assimilated. You have not obeyed me. And therefore, he says, I will not drive them out before you. But they shall become as thorns in your sides, and their gods shall be a snare to you. Now, if you go back to Exodus chapter 23, which is one of the first places that God promises victory and warns of defeat, uh, and you go to Exodus chapter 34 and see the same, you'll see that God spelled out the things that we are going to read are exactly what God said would happen if Israel did not keep uh, their covenant with him. And indeed, these things will take place. What I want you to notice, and why I'm slipping back to, into, into chapter 1, and in particular verses uh, 1 through 5 of chapter 2, is because I want you to keep your eyes on this thing where God says, I will not drive them out. What I see in the first part of chapter 2 is, this is divine discipline. Call it punishment, if you like. Okay? It's covenant punishment, is it not? God said, this is what I'll do if you disobey me and enter into covenant and worship their gods. And that's precisely what he does. But it's discipline. I want you to watch what happens with not driving out the Canaanites completely when we come to the end of chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 3. Something wonderful, I think, uh, occurs there, which ought to encourage us. So when we come to verse 6 through verse 10... We see the transition, and this is now the beginning of the introduction of the second introduction. And that is that Joshua is still alive. He has dismissed the people, having given those exhortations and warnings that we saw in Joshua 23 and 24. And now these people are going to follow God and obey his commandments so long as Joshua and, let's say, his generation of leaders continues. 
If you have a net Bible in your hand and it talks about the older men of Israel, uh, if you look at the way that word is translated, most often it's like a hundred and some time it means, means elders, leaders. And, and three or four times it means older men. Now, generally, elders are older men. Ta-da! <laughs> but, but, but it doesn't necessarily mean that that is, is uh, absolutely the case here, that these are just older men. But they are, I believe, leaders. In other words, this is a time when Israel's leaders knew God, saw his work, and were faithful to him. Now, case in point from chapter 1 would be Caleb, right? Caleb was a man who believed in God and trusted God and was a model for others and a motivator for others to follow him. By the way, I've got to add one little parenthesis here that I, that I didn't think about when I was talking about Caleb and his daughter Aksa. If you look at the at later on in uh, in chapter three, actually beyond where I'll go, you'll see that every time it is that I know of that it's described that the, the the Israelites go off and intermarry with the the Canaanites or whoever it is the pagans, it is always them giving their women to their men, your women to their men. And, and all of a sudden it dawned on me when I looked at this and I thought, here is Caleb, an Israelite man of great courage and faith. When you look at what he does by saying, whoever takes this, land, takes this particular place, I'm going to give you my daughter, Aksa. What does he do? One, he guarantees his daughter is going to marry an Israelite. Two, he guarantees that the man she marries is a man of faith and courage. That's not bad leadership, is it? It's great leadership, and he is a model of that. Here are others who stood alongside Joshua, and as long as these men were alive, the nation moved in the right direction. So I'm saying to you, this is saying something to us about leadership. That's, what the, that's the issue that started chapter 1. Who will go up first? Who will lead us into battle? And now it's the leaders that were under Joshua and people of faith who helped Israel stay on track. And you can see that pretty much in Israel's history. When you have godly leaders, generally speaking, the nation moves in the right direction. When you have ungodly leaders, it goes down the tubes. So there is the, the uh, death of that Joshua generation. By the way, that should be uh, uh, chapter 2, verses 6 through 9, not verses 2 through 9. And there is a new generation now that does not know God or his works. You see that, uh, by the way, described also in Deuteronomy chapter 11, where God is speaking to this generation. And he said, you have seen with your own eyes what I have done. You have seen what I've done to the uh, Egyptians. You have seen what I have done to these people who have opposed you as we've come into the land. You've witnessed all of these things that have taken place. And, and then he talks about your children who have not seen those things. And so this is the generation that follows. It is a generation not that's been badly taught, at least from this text. Maybe that's true. But from this text, they are a generation that hasn't caught it. They have heard about God, but they haven't known him. Boy, that, that, is, that to me is, is just almost sends chills up and down your spine. How many of our children 
have heard about the faith, who have been and watched and seen God uh, in the parents' lives, but have not yet come to experience God in their own life and experience. Isn't that one of our great concerns as, as, as a church or as parents, is that somehow the next generation catches it. And the way they catch it is by coming into a personal relationship, a personal knowledge. It's not just knowing about God, though that is important. It is knowing God personally and seeing him at work, seeing the work which he has done for Israel. This is a new generation. It reminds me of back in Exodus where it says there arose a generation that did not know Joseph. (laughs) Things did not go well for Israel, did they? Here's a generation that has arisen who does not really know God. What a horrible thing. And so all of this now flows out in terms of what we read in verses 11 and following. So this, from the words of our author, this is the cause, a generation that doesn't know God. The effect is going to come in verses 11 and following. Uh, And by the way, if we were to go back to chapter 1, you would say, this is a generation who was assimilated into the Canaanite culture rather than who destroyed the Canaanites and, and took the land for themselves. So being brought into a culture that was forbidden, not knowing God, now leads to the evils that are going to be described in, in verses 11 and following. So there's a cause-effect relationship, and notice that in our verses, there's going to be an alternation that takes place. Israel's going to do something, God's going to respond. Israel's going to do something, God's going to respond. And back and forth that goes, and you see these interrelationships between Israel's unbelief and God's fidelity to his purposes and to his people. So Israel's sins are outlined in verses 11 through 13. They serve the Baals. That would be the, the male manifestations. The Baal is a particular God, and you have various manifestations from one place to another as to the precise details of that. They forsook the Lord, and they forsook the Lord and served Baal and Astartes, that is, the female counterparts. So that's all you need to know at this stage about Canaanite religion is there's a male and a female counterpart, and they have now engaged in that, looking to those gods rather than to the true God who gave them the victory and the liberty from the land of Egypt. Now look at verses 14 through 16. In his anger, he gave them over to their enemies. God is angry at the sin of his people. Because they have forsaken him. It's righteous anger. It's jealous anger. And there is nothing wrong with it. But he gives them over to the enemy. So here you have this reversal of what's happening. If they had trusted God, God said, I would give you prosperity. I would give you fertility. The very things for which they worshipped. The Canaanite god or goddesses. Uh, and, and I will give you these things. I will give you military victory over your enemies. And they have forsaken God, and now the reverse has come to pass, and now they suffer from being placed under the, uh, the power of their enemies rather than over their enemies. His hand was against them, and I underscore this fact, as he had promised. 
If you go back and you look at all of the texts where God is warning Israel about the future, he tells them over and over exactly what's going to happen. And one of the things we see is God's word is true. God's word is true regarding his blessings. God's word is true regarding his discipline. Nothing happens here that we are not told about in general terms, sometimes in more specific terms. This is all carrying out what God himself has said. But look at this. The third thing you see in verses 14 through 16 is God gave them judges. Does that not just stop you in your tracks? God is angry. God turns his hand against them, handing them over to their enemies. So God is the source of their trouble. Would you not agree? Their woes, their bondage is from God. He grants victory to their enemies over Israel. And yet in the same breath it says he is the one who gives them the judges, the deliverers, that will rescue them out of this. Now the thing I want to, I, I want to emphasize, because I think it's clear in the text, Repentance is never mentioned in this, in this chapter. Repentance is never mentioned. So what you don't see is Israel at this point, at least by this description. You don't see Israel uh, coming under all this affliction and, and, and then saying, Oh Lord, we've sinned. Please forgive us. God sends them a deliverer before there is any indication of repentance. And even after that deliverer comes and delivers them for their whole lifetime, they're still going to turn away. So what I'm saying is this. Anything we learn about man, in particular what we learn about Israel, is bad. And whatever good is being brought to pass here is being brought to pass because God is who he is and because God has promised to do a work. It is his character, it is his covenant that is the basis for this. So God gives them difficulties, God gives them deliverance, and he gives them deliverance because of his mercy and compassion, as we'll see. But look at verse 17. In spite of this, it says, they did not listen to their judges. Now, I have to admit, I've, I've sort of struggled over this, this particular statement. And I'm saying... Uh, what were their judges saying? Okay, and I'm thinking about bad boy Samson. Was Samson giving them lessons on sexual purity? <laughs> what? Come on! What was Samson? What was he saying? In fact, you look at some of these guys, and, and, and what you see is just military uh, bad boys, don't you? Uh, sort of the Hulk uh, kind of person. And, and you don't see them taking a teaching, advisory, counseling, instructive role, which, which leads me to one of two conclusions or, or one of two answers. A, these judges do and say a whole lot more than what we are told in the book of Judges. If they don't listen to their judges, then their judges must be talking to them about God and they're not listening. But we wouldn't guess from what we read that they're talking about God. And uh, Patrick reminded me this past week of Hebrews. Remember in Hebrews chapter 11 when it talks about some of Israel's judges and it calls them men of faith? 
it may well be that we're not told everything that these judges do and say. Solution number one. Solution number two. There are more judges than we think there are. Or putting it differently, there are more judges than we read that there are in the book of Judges. Uh, and let me, let me give you an example. Deborah. Now, I don't know whether Deborah's ever actually called a judge, but it is said that she judges Israel. Remember, she's under the tree, sitting under the tree, and she's judging Israel. And I would say of anybody that I know in the book of Judges, she's the one who ought to be telling them about God, and they should have been listening. But where are the other ones? Um, but look back with me in the, in the book of Numbers, chapter 25. Uh, this kind of caught me by surprise. Now, there's some, remember, this is before that second generation of Israelites uh, go in and take possession of the land of Canaan under Joshua. And you remember the, uh, uh, the whole thing with Balaam and Balak trying to curse the people of God. And then we read these verses, chapter 25 of Numbers, starting at verse 1. While Israel remained at Shittim, the people began to play the harlot with the daughters of Moab. For they invited the people to sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel joined themselves to Baal of Peor, and the Lord was angry against Israel. Well, that's kind of a familiar sound to us. But look at verse 4. And the Lord said to Moses, Take all the leaders of the people and execute them in broad daylight before the Lord, so that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. So Moses said to the judges of Israel, Each of you slay his men who have joined themselves to Baal of Peor. So here are these judges, and apparently there must be a number of them at that moment in time. Would you not agree? And their task is to go about... And to find those people who are committing this immorality with the Moabites, and they are to kill the leaders. To kill the leaders. Boy, that tells you that leadership's really important, doesn't it? And it tells you that the leaders also set the example. Uh, and, and I think that's exactly what happens. When you read further down in chapter 25, you will notice that the one uh, that, is, that is particularly put to death, remember, who goes into the tent with a Moabite girly and, and, and they're run through with the, the spear, he was the son of one of the leaders of the nation of Israel. I might add, he was the son of one of the Simeonite leaders, if that relates to chapter 1 at all. And, and so there may well be more judges than just the military people that we're reading about. But the bottom line is, God is at work through his judges, but his people are not listening or heeding what they have to say. They quickly turn aside from their father's obedience. And when it says ancestors in some translations, you either have to go back and work really hard to find an Abraham or whatever, or basically you take fathers in the previous generation, and you say, they obeyed. This next generation disobeyed, and they did so very quickly. Verse 18 describes God's compassion. And when the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge and delivered them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning, 
because of those who oppressed and afflicted them. Let me say a word about groaning. If you have a net Bible, you're going to hear me grouse about this. There may be a footnote that says, or groaning, but it says they cried out in their pain or something of that sort. The, the problem with that is, one, it's only used a few times and never that way. It, groaning is something where you don't holler out. You just sort of, you know how it is when you're sick and you kind of moan and groan, that kind of moaning. And, and uh, also, it's the word that's used of the Israelites in their Egyptian captivity. Twice out of the four times it's used, it's used of the, Egyptian, uh, the Israelites moaning because of their Egyptian uh, oppression. And God listens to that. When you say they cry out, you may get the impression they cried out in repentance. And that is not the case. It is God who is moved out of his mercy because of their anguish. It is not God who is moving because of their repentance for their sin. Everything we read about this generation tells us that that is not what is taking place. They are rather quickly turning aside and God, it is the only reason judges come is because God is touched with compassion by the suffering of his people. It's interesting now when you go to Exodus 34 and you see one of those texts where God is telling them that they must go in and possess the land and kill off all the Canaanites and, and all of that stuff. And then he warns that he will deal harshly with them if they turn and serve those gods that's on the heels of what has just been said. Remember where Moses says, show me your glory. And God basically does two things. It says He talks about mercy on whom I have mercy and so on. And he, he, is, he is compassionate and merciful and whatever. But he also holds people accountable for sin. And I always wanted that text. Well, let me read it to you because you're looking at me like maybe I need to do that. Exodus. Chapter 34, verse 6. Then the Lord passed in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. Ooh, I like that part, don't you? But then it says, And he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. Oops. Here's what I see. God combines his justice and his mercy. When he describes his character, he is both. He is both. And so I, I picked that tech, uh, text up which says, in justice, remember mercy, because that's what God is doing. He is dealing with his people in justice, just as he said, but he is also dealing with his people in mercy. And that just oozes out of our text. So he sends the judges, and for the lifetime of that judge, the Israelites live in peace and deliverance. But immediately they turn back when it dies, and the judge dies. And notice, they go downward. They go downward. Every generation goes down. They don't just repeat the sins of their fathers. They magnify them. They embellish them. They add to them. Isn't that typical? I don't want to get off in psychobabble, but in terms of addictions, isn't it interesting that you always have to keep moving down? You can't stay where you are. You have to keep moving down. Whatever it is that you think you need that you shouldn't have, 
You have to have more and more of it. And that's exactly what you see with this bondage of the uh, Israelites in, in their sin. Now look at God's response in verse 20 through 23. He's angry because they broke his covenant. He no longer will drive out those that Joshua left. Isn't that an interesting statement? He doesn't say he will no longer drive out their enemies. He says, I will no longer drive out those I left with Joshua that, that didn't get defeated under Joshua. These undefeated nations had a purpose. God was not surprised with what Israel did. And you see again in, in the last verse, in verse 23. So the Lord allowed those nations to remain, not driving them out quickly, and he did not give them into the hand of Joshua. Why did God not give victory to Joshua and defeat all the Canaanites? Because he left them to achieve his purposes which are now being realized here. God is not surprised by Israel's sin. He is planning on Israel's sin because he knows it's going to come. Now, the point that I want to get to is the whole point of the testing. If you look at verse 22, it says, he, he does this in order to test Israel by them, whether they will keep the way of the Lord uh, to walk in it as their fathers did or not. It's a test of their obedience. Now, when you go back to what God has said in verse 3 of chapter 2, he drives them out as punishment. Now he's driving them out as a test. And if we keep reading, as we will, into chapter 3, and we're just going to stop at verse 4, he left Israelites, uh, the Canaanites to test Israel by them. Now, look what it says. That is, all who had not experienced any of the wars of Canaan. That word experienced, look at your margin if you have a new ASB, known. It's the same word that we saw up in verse 10. Here's a generation who has not known God or his works. Now what's happening? Now God leaves the Canaanites so that those who did not know war will now experience it. Why? Because when they go to war, if they trust in God, they will see his works. Is that not true? When the judges come along, they summon the Israelites to go to battle. And interestingly enough, God said in, in, uh, in Deuteronomy 11, I believe it was, when he describes the, the things that he has done, he basically says, I'm going to do things that are greater than what I've done at the Exodus. Greater. Greater things are going to happen in Canaan than happened in Egypt. Would you not say that's pretty powerful stuff? God wanted to demonstrate his greatness, his power, and his grace. So he left Canaanites there so that Israelites would have to fight the Canaanites, would have to experience war, and would have the privilege of coming to know God, the God they didn't know by experience, didn't know his works. He gives them the opportunity, and then he gives the Canaanites to them to test them to see, will they obey? Okay, here's what I'm saying. When I look at chapter 1, I see it going from bad to worse. 
I see the victory that comes under Judah dealing with Adonai Bezek. And while they won the army and God was with, uh, won the war and God was with them, nevertheless, they did not deal with the enemy as they should have. That is, they did not kill Adonai Bezek. They kept him as a trophy. All of chapter 1 is going from bad to worse. When I look at chapter 2, the focus is not so much on men and their sin. It's there, but it's not the highlight of chapter 2. The highlight of chapter 2 is God's mercy and grace. He sends adversity because of Israel's disobedience, but he also sends salvation to them. In spite of that, in spite of the fact that they're going downhill, isn't that, isn't that what you see? If you were to look at a chart and, and you did a graph, here's spiritual Israel, downer. Here's God dealing with Israel. It's an upper. In the sense that God starts with judgment, verse 3, and he leaves the Canaanites for judgment. But by the time you get to the end of the text, he is doing it graciously to cause his people to experience him and to give them the opportunity to turn and obey. That, to me, is just a marvel and a wonder. So the thing I want you to be very careful about as you think about this text is this. By the way, I'm kind of wandering away from my notes. I knew I was going to do that, so don't look up there. You probably won't see it. Is I want you to see that Judges is not primarily a book that describes the wickedness of men. Hey, folks, if you wanted to describe the wickedness of men, we'd have a full-blown account of Canaanite religion. We don't need that. We don't need that. And we don't even need a full-blown account of all of the wickedness of Israel. What we need is to realize that God is a merciful and compassionate God. I was thinking of a text in Romans chapter 5 that seems to me to just overlay this whole account. Romans chapter 5 verse 20 says, Where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Isn't that what this is? Isn't that what this is? Sin increases. Man goes from bad to worse. Grace abounds all the more. Yes, God was angry. Yes, God turned his hand against his people. But ultimately, his judgment was his mercy. I was thinking about a statement that I've made before. Uh, The curse is the cure. The curse is the cure. Think about the fall of man in Genesis. What is the curse? The curse is death, is it not? If you do this, and the day that you do this, you will surely die. What is the cure? We have it at the Lord's Supper every week. It's death. The cure for the curse is the death of Christ. So what God has done is taken the curse that was promised under the Old Covenant, and He has given us the cure. You can see shadows of that in the Old Testament. You can see... Lots in the new. I want to jump for a minute to some points of application. How can we know God and experience his works today? Isn't that really what it comes down to? If the problem then was that men did not know God and they did not know his works, isn't that really the same problem that exists in the church 
in evangelical, professing evangelical Christianity is that people may know about God, but they don't really know him personally. They don't really see his works and, and his power at work. Well, let me begin with a, a word of caution. And, and I'm going to say this, uh, I hope kindly, for those who are either non-charismatic or anti-charismatic. I heard somebody preach this text, and, and they said something like this. Well, of course we know now that we don't have the kinds of miracles and stuff that happened back then. And all I would say is, how do we know that for sure? On what basis? What God has done is, is one, if, if they did not know and experience God, how has God solved that under the new covenant? One, he has sent his son incarnate so that the writers of the New Testament will say that he came, God manifest in the flesh. And in, in, in uh, 1 John chapter 1, he says, we have seen him, we have heard him, we have touched him. A people who had never seen God in that intimate way now sees him in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. And they record that for us. They become the authors of the, of the epistles and they record that for us to read. But more than that, he sends us his spirit. His spirit causes us to do several things. He said to his disciples, my spirit will cause you to remember, right? To remember the things that have happened. Now, I remember Don Glenn was talking this morning about how, uh, you know, he forgets things. And I'm thinking, welcome to the club, partner. All of us have that problem of forgetfulness. But it wasn't just the apostles who needed to remember what Jesus said to them. It's us who need to remember what Jesus has said and done. The Holy Spirit is the manifestation of God's presence in us. Is that not true? He is the manifestation of God's presence in us. Anybody who is a believer in Jesus Christ has God dwelling in them. Never in the Old Testament days could you ever have exactly that kind of relationship. Not only that, but God's Spirit is among us to manifest His power and His works. And as I look at the book of Acts and I look at the New Testament, I'm not one who says every time that somebody claims there's going to be a miracle, there's going to be one. But I'm not going to line up with those who say, we live in a day when miracles don't happen. I believe that God works in adversity. And he works in difficult times and he works in miraculous ways so that we may know him and his works. As I see Patrick back there nodding, but I was thinking about Orv and, and those with him. When we read those accounts... And we see the difficulty and the obstacles that come up against God's work. And we pray. And we see the answers to those prayers. Do you not think that we see God at work? That we see God is working in vital and powerful and miraculous ways. He's doing that graciously for us so that we, he will draw us to himself. Okay, enough on that point. How do we have an experience with God and know his works today? Through his word, by remembering his faithfulness. And I'm talking about that more globally. Think about your own life and think about incidents in your life when God was so evidently there. You just couldn't deny it, but you just sort of forgot about it. Now, 
in our house, my wife has the old seminary war stories, and, and, and somehow I, I got two hours of sleep every night. It's probably three or four, really. But and, and you know, we didn't have food to eat, and, and there was there, there's a lot of truth in all of that. But you know what was really great? I, literally every month, I made half of what we knew we had to pay in in, in expenses, half of what we needed every month. It was incredible for us to watch God provide. It was a wonderful time in our life. And, and, and frankly, as we get old and things are a little more secure and whatever, we kind of tend to push those memories back and forget about those. And we forget about the way in which God made himself real to us and showed his power. And, of course, there is the remembrance of our Lord Jesus and the salvation he has brought. There is the sharing as we come together in the Lord's Supper. There is the sharing of other people who share how God has been at work in their lives. That's what gathering together ought to, ought to bring about for us. I want to say that we ought to do it by living dangerously in faith. I think, as I suggested last week, I think that, that we think of God as being the God of the possible as, a, as opposed to being God of the impossible. When God commands us to do something, then he expects us to do it, whether it's impossible or not. And most of what God commands is impossible in the flesh. It's impossible. Remember, the Lord says, with man it's impossible. With God, all things are possible. I think that God has put us in a time and a place where he's pulled some of the props out and where it looks less possible to do the work of God than it did two or three years ago. And I think it's God simply saying, well, it's not less possible for me. I'm just up in the ante, just pouring a little water in the altar. Uh, but I want to demonstrate who I am. We need to step up to the plate and see God calling us to do things that are over the line in terms of possibility. We need to engage and confront our culture. Now, I think... I want to be careful how I say this, because I, I, I think when you look at what's taking place in the Old Testament, the Israelites were to live distinctly. They were to live separately from the Canaanites and from their culture. But God has called us to go out into the world and preach the gospel. And the way in which you're going to do that is by confronting the culture, not hiding from it. Now, there are times when we need to stand apart. Don't misunderstand me. But many times we need to confront the culture. We need to be there. We need to be in the arts. We need to be in politics. We need to be in education. Rather than to, than to pull off, we need to confront the culture. I guess what I'm saying is we need to do battle. And if you're going to do battle, then you've got to be where the war is. And the war is waging. We need to engage in war. Godly leaders. The importance of godly leaders. I, I look at this text and I see, look at that. All of the days, even after Joshua dies, all of the days in which there were people, leaders, who had seen the work of God, the people were challenged and they obeyed. We ought to pray for godly leaders. Godly leaders. Now, when I talk about that, I'm talking about the heroes of the Old Testament and the New I'm talking about the heroes of church history. I'm talking about the heroes of today. One of the series I love is that series, Men of Whom the World is Not Worthy, by John Piper. We need to be looking at the heroes, and we need to be seeing 
God at work in their lives and realizing He has placed leaders among us in history and in the present to challenge us to walk rightly before God. One of the things I love about the way in which we do church is we're a church that's small enough that people can actually know who their leaders are, who can actually observe their leadership in the midst of the body. And we have a meeting in which all men are challenged to step forward and lead. And our children, the next generation, can watch leaders leading the way they ought to. Now, we need to have godly leaders, not leaders that are selected on the basis of their incomes or whatever else it is we think humanly they can offer, but people who have known God. And by the way, we need to have the, uh, the uh, Deborahs as well as the Barracks who can demonstrate the work of God and the presence of God in our midst. So if, I, if, if you've missed anything of what I've said, don't miss the fact that as bad as man gets in the book of Judges, and it is really bad, God is faithful to his covenant, he is faithful to his character, and grace always abounds above sin. What a wonderful truth that is for us. Have you ever felt like you're just a washout, <laughs> whatever, and, and you just say, look at who God uses. Look at who God raises up to work amongst his people. God will not forsake his covenant or his covenant people who belong to him. If you're here and you haven't trusted in the Lord Jesus, then I have to say, trust him. It's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. He is the ultimate judge. See, one of the things the book of Judges does is it says to us, oh, if there were only the right kind of leadership. And so when we get to 1 Samuel, we say, we're there. Now we've got it. Well, not Saul, but at least David. Well, until 2 Samuel chapter 11 or so, that, that looks good too. What the Bible is doing is creating in us a desire for the godly leader, and the one who is the godly leader is the one who's going to come and deliver. And notice this. Think about Hebrews. The high priest, remember, they functioned until they died, but the high priest, our Lord Jesus, lives forever. Our judge, our judge lives forever. How long does that give us our freedom? Forever. It's a great thing. Father, thank you for... The Lord Jesus, who is our great deliverer. He is not flawed as the deliverers we see in the book of Judges. He is the perfect, righteous one. Thank you that you are a God who is touched by our misery and that you work in our lives and bring adversity, not just to punish us, but to cause us to see you and your greatness and your grace and your power. May we be people who know you and who know your works. In Jesus' name, amen.